Welcome to Wheaton Bible Church. We're excited that you joined us today. My name is Mike and I serve on the Student Life Team. Just a few quick announcements before we begin our time in worship. Easter is only two weeks away and I wanna encourage you to check out wheatonbible.org Easter for all of our information about Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter services. At that same webpage, you can also learn about our ongoing Lent activities, as well as an exciting family fun Hunt for Easter event here at church with your elementary age kids. You don't wanna miss it. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you haven't been baptized, we would love for you to do that right here on Sunday, April 24th. Head over to wheatonbible.org baptism to learn more and to register for our upcoming baptism class. Finally, as a follower of Christ, we wanna help you connect your faith to the work that God has blessed you with. Our weekly faith and work class at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays meets right here at the church and starts April 6th. Check out wheatonbible.org slash faith and work to register and to get all the information for that. That's it for today. Have an awesome Sunday. Good morning and welcome. What a privilege to be gathered together today to worship our risen Savior, to set our mind on things above, to set our hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We're going to begin today with a responsive reading. This reading comes from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, Come let, let us, us bow down, down and worship. Let, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Amen.
streams from the hills it descends to the plain and sweetly distills in the dew and the
wissen will. No condemnation, now we dread in Christ Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. The news we most long to hear. If you, like me, you're experiencing something of one of two times, sometimes you are keenly aware of your own sin and you hear the news of no condemnation and rush towards it. If you're there today, rush towards Jesus and hear that good news. Other times I know I feel self-sufficient. I need the reminder of why we need a Savior. If you're there today, may you see our holy God for who he is. May you see his gift of a gracious Savior in Jesus, and may you rush to him today. As we prepare for communion later this morning, let's take time in this service to behold Jesus, to consider our need for a Savior. He is our God. He lived for us, he suffered, he died, he rose for us, that we might belong to him forever through faith. Let's take a moment now of silent confession before him. Second Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's stand and continue singing together. child asleep in the manger tender and mild this intimate stranger recklessly wildly loving the dangerous world who is this light invading our darkness glorious might the sun rising for us conquering night he captures the hardest of hearts we sing this is our god living and breathing call him courageous relentless and brave this is our god loving and reaching scandalous mercy and mighty to save hallelujah this is our god hallelujah this is our god hallelujah this is our god 
Should he come to shoulder our sentence? Nothing we've done will keep him from giving us grace. Who is this one? We watch and we're speechless. God's only son, embracing our weakness. He overcomes all death. And he frees us to live, and we sing, this is our God, suffering and dying, call him the hero, redeeming the lost, this is our God, love sacrificing, all that is holy, accepting our cross, updates from a recent trip to reconnect with and renew some incredible partnerships in Kenya. This morning, I just want to give you a few highlights of what God is up to there. And beyond this morning, we have other clips that are going to be posted on our social media in the coming weeks, so be sure to continue following along there as well. A theme of this trip for me was seeing how God gives vision to his global church. Over and over again, we were with partners in places that were once barren land, where years ago we prayed together about what God might do. We prayed in faith for him to move in mighty ways. And now on trips like this one, to stand in those same places and to see that God has moved in really beautiful ways. Are you ready for some testimonies? So two main regions where we minister with these incredible missionaries and partners. First, we were in the far northwest of Kenya, a region called Turkana. We started ministering here together with Parklands Baptist Church, which is a, an amazing church based in Nairobi and with World Relief Kenya 10 years ago in the midst of a devastating drought and famine. Five years ago on a trip, we met with a brand new church plant that was meeting under a tree on a dry riverbed. Together we prayed. We prayed over that land, over a new water access point, and with the community for the Lord's transformation. And on this visit, where once there was just a dry riverbed, we walked through 
gardens. We saw this beautiful agriculture and we stood and dedicated a new school where there's never been access to a school before and worshiped the Lord together with so many in the community who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And the next day, we traveled even more remotely to visit another brand new church plant. There, we experienced the vibrant worship of the whole community with a solar-powered PA system. This church plant shared with us that once a month, they pool their resources in order to care for the most vulnerable among them. And so we were able to, to witness this group of new believers who have already caught the vision of Christ to care for one another. Sounds like something out of the New Testament, doesn't it? And so those are the highlights from Turkana. And that was only the first half of the trip. We then traveled to see our missionaries Scott and Barb Harbert and Josephine Chiari in Nakuru. And there in Nakuru, we celebrated 22 years of ministry of the Hope for Life Center. And again, we looked out over land that 16 years ago, Josephine shared with us was just grass. And on this visit, all these years later, we walked through the gardens that are providing vegetables for the feeding program that continues to feed 100 vulnerable children every day. And this year, from our extra giving at Missions Fest this fall, Josephine constructed the third and final floor at the Hope for Life Center. This is only going to keep expanding the ministry, and I'm just so excited to see what God is going to do in the years to come, because so much happens here from the feeding program, skills training, caring for widows and vulnerable women, a gathering space for the community, a hub for church planning, the list goes on and on. Josephine estimates that over the years, 28,000 children have been fed. 10,000 skill trainees have gone through courses here. Over 1,000 groups of 30 have been trained in using their own community assets. And 900 groups in microfinance all of those avenues of sharing the gospel. And so we celebrate even more the many thousands who have heard and responded to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now at this anniversary, Josephine and the students themselves had their own thanks to offer you, their Wheaton Bible Church family. So church family, I hope you receive that thank you, but I also hope um, you receive what the kids just said. We know Christ Jesus, we serve Christ Jesus, we tell of Christ Jesus. They're his ambassadors to the nations now. So I just want to lead us in a time of prayer together over our missionaries and partners around the world. Father God, we thank you for... Your presence, Lord, your presence in places like Turkana, Father, where we can gather together and pray and pray for your transformation in communities and, and return 
to find that transformation in brothers and sisters in you, Father, to worship together as your global body of believers. So we pray, Father, for your continued presence in Kenya. Lord, we pray for your continued presence uh, among the nations. Father, in, 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 in every area where there is war, Father, for the terrible war in Ukraine, we pray for your peace that in this Easter season, Father, that as we reflect on, as we see, as we worship you, Lord, and the resurrection, Father, of the Prince of Peace, of Jesus Christ, we pray that there would be a peace that would reign in the nations that defies all human understanding, Lord. And Father, would have the nations turning to you and glorifying you. And so, Lord, we pray as a church family, I pray, Lord, that as we approach this, this Easter season, this incredibly uh, important week in the life of the church, in the church calendar, Father, that you would, in fresh ways, Lord, fill our hearts, Father. Transform us, Lord. And, and in that transformation, help us, like the kids at Hope for Life, to say, not only do we know of your love, Father, but we serve you and we go out to our communities, neighbors, families, the nations, and tell of your love as your ambassadors. And we pray that it would all be for your glory among all the nations forever and ever, Lord. To you be the glory. Amen. And as we continue in worship, I just want to introduce you uh, this morning to uh, another long-term member of our global missionary family. So can you please welcome Randy Cap this morning for our scripture reading. Would you please stand? Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And this morning, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning, familia. I want to welcome all of you that are here worshiping with us in presence, uh, in, in, in person, and also uh, those of you worshiping with us online. Uh, as always, it is a privilege uh, that, that you have chosen us to be the church where you worship, uh, where you get to exalt our Lord and Savior, and where we get to do community uh, together. Today, we get to finish our Gospel Culture series in which we have been looking into 12 different biblical traits 
that explain what it means to be a biblical church that help us understand or, or see what a blueprint of what a spiritual renewal looks like, and it also gives us the tools necessary to remain faithful and fruitful in the midst of a changing society. What we have been trying to do for 12 weeks now is giving you the tools necessary for you to understand what it means to be a biblical church, uh, a blueprint for the things that we need to believe and practice in order for us to experience a spiritual renewal, and lastly, uh, the things that we need to believe and practice in order for us to remain faithful and fruitful. And today, we are talking about the last and not le uh, less important, and I would actually, the, the concept that puts everything else that we talked about together. Today, we're talking about the commitment to make disciples. And I don't think that there's anything better than what we just saw and how the Lord uses people when they choose to not only become disciples of Jesus Christ, but they choose to make other disciples for the glory of God and the well-being of others. Amen? And this is part of the reason why we are looking at a very famous passage in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. I, I don't know how long you have been a Christian, but as a Christian, I would say that I've heard more sermons about that passage than anything else. Amen? How many of you guys have heard at least five sermons on Matthew chapter 28? There it is. Um, now, the problem when you have a passage that is so, so popular, so well known, is that you assume that you know what the text says. That's always the problem when you, you become familiar, if you will, with something and you don't really pay attention to the details of every single word. I think that Matthew chapter 28 it's a, it's a crucial text for us as a church. Not only because it explains why is it that we do things the way we do, for example, in Africa, and why is it that we send missionaries into the world, and why is it that we want to be people that proclaim the gospel and is taking the gospel to other places. But I think that Matthew 28 is extremely important because it tells you what it means to be a disciple. See, as a church, we cannot be content we just gathering people. The church has to be more than that. As a church, we cannot be content with having a lot of visitors that are non-Christians. That's good, but we need more than that. As a church, we cannot even be content with just proclaiming the gospel. Because the church is much more than that. As a church, we cannot be even content with just the seeing a lot of people coming into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, which is amazing and awesome, but the church has to be more than that. As a church, we are supposed to be disciples that make disciples. As a Christian, you cannot be content with just being, being part of the church and participating and doing community and getting to know the Lord and all those things. That is, that's absolutely necessary and crucial for what it means to be a Christian, but to be a Christian means also to be a disciple maker. We are, we are all called to be disciples and to make disciples. Now, in order for us to talk about this, uh, it is extremely important that we all have the same understanding of what it means to be a disciple. And what I find interesting in this passage is that Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples, but at the same time, he's explaining with the same passage what a disciple is. Did you catch that? 
I run out of breath just saying it. In the same passage, with the same passage, Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples, but in order for them to make disciples, they first need to understand what a disciple is. Therefore, I'm going to give you three things that the passage says about what a disciple is. A disciple is one with a new priority, is one with a new purpose, and is one with a new trust. I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask the question, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Go ahead, go ahead. Awesome. Let's go with point number one. Uh, a disciple is one with a new priority. If I were to pick one word to describe what Matthew 28 at the end is all about, is the word commissioning. I don't know if you're familiar with the term commissioning, but in church history or within the context of the church, uh, to commission someone is to recognize that a person has a, 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 a special call from the Lord and uh, that person is publicly recognized as someone that has been chosen by God to serve him and his purposes, whether in a local, local congregation or in a, in a very specific missional task, if you will. This is part of the reason why many churches commission uh, commissions and ordain pastors and ministers. Uh, There's part of the reason why many churches commission mi uh, missionaries before they send them out to do something. Um, so the, the word commission is an important within the context of the local church. And what I think is happening here in Matthew 28 is God, is Jesus commissioning his disciples. And therefore, Jesus commissioning all of us as Christians. People that are about to be, to be, that are about to be sent out into the world as his representatives to give him glory and to seek the well-being of others. To contribute to the restoration of all things. And this event is so and so important that I think it's part of the reason why Jesus is doing this up in a mountain. If you notice in verse 16, it says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Um, the reason why I'm thinking, what I'm saying that I think that this is the reason why Jesus is there, the importance of this, is because when you read the Gospel of Matthew, mountains, every time something happens in a mountain, God is doing something special. It's some sort of special revelation or God appointing his people or someone uh, for something special, Jesus himself. So I don't want you to lose the significance of this. Jesus is about to commission his, dis commission his disciples for something bigger and better. Here in this place, God is calling them to not only be disciples, but make disciples. So the question remains... What is a disciple? And I just told you that for me, the way to reduce or to explain what a disciple is to understand that a disciple knows that Jesus is the ultimate priority. A disciple is a person that understands that everything is about Jesus. And not only to see Jesus as a Savior, but to see Jesus as Lord. If you want to know the difference between a religious person and a disciple, it has to do with the concept of Jesus as Lord. Not just Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as Lord. Where do I get that from? In verse 18, it says that Jesus came to them and said, All authority is in heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The key phrase right there is all authority. Once again, this is the main difference between a false disciple and a true disciple. 
A true disciples understand that Jesus is not only a Savior, but that he is Lord. That we belong to him 100%. That he's supposed to influence every area of our lives. A false disciple thinks that our relationship with Jesus is about a 50-50 thing. You know, I do my part, you do your part. I get to pick whatever I want from Jesus, but the parts that I don't like, I don't have to pick. But if Jesus is Lord, if he's the ultimate authority, then everything we are, everything we have, everything we do must submit to his lordship. As Christians, we should always ask the question, is Jesus truly my Lord? Am I truly following Jesus for who Jesus is? Is Jesus truly my ultimate priority? I wonder if this is the reason why Jesus in the Gospels many times questions people's motives and calls people and calls people to surrender to him completely. You know, for almost for every single one of his disciples, he called them to surrender everything before they followed him. See, in modern culture, I think that if Jesus would make the same call, he would seem a little bit aggressive. What do you mean I'm supposed to follow everything, uh, drop everything to follow you? You guys remember that section in which Jesus is saying some of the religious leaders are approaching Jesus and says, look, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus says, well, I don't know you. This is a call to follow him. To believe in Jesus as a Savior and Lord is to drop everything to follow him. It's to have him as the ultimate authority over every single sphere in our lives. We don't get to pick a fragmented Jesus, you know. And I know that's a popular concept today, but we don't get to pick a fragmented Jesus. Either we take Jesus as, a, as Lord or we're not Christians yet. And I know that sounds aggressive, but I, I, don't, I think that the, Bible, the New Testament makes that extremely clear. Either we take him as Savior and Lord, we take the whole of him and everything he says, or we cannot take him at all. You might like Jesus, but it doesn't mean that he's your Lord. I'm going to use a couple of illustrations here that I'm borrowing from Tim Keller. Uh, years ago, I heard a preaching, a preaching of him talking about uh, one specific event, one, le- one teaching he heard that truly transformed his life. He was talking about this uh, professor teacher called Barbara Boyd. And she's explaining this concept about taking Jesus as a whole or not taking him at all. And she says that a lot of people would treat Jesus the same way people would treat her. And this is what she says. She says, if I am Barbara Boyd, you don't get to pick Barbara or Boyd. You have to take the whole person as it is. If you take Hannibal, you cannot take just Hannibal and maybe Rodriguez. You get to pick Hannibal Rodriguez because my first and my last name is a description of who I am, if you will. She said, that's what a lot of people would do with Jesus today. Would take Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. But just as much you cannot take a person's first name and not last name, you don't get to pick Jesus' name as a Savior and not as a Lord. Either you take him all, 
or you don't take him at all. That's a little bit confronting, isn't it? Well, she gives a second illustration. And she says that part of the reason why we struggle surrendering our lives completely to him is because we forget who God is, who Jesus is. So, for example, she starts using this explanation about the universe, and I don't have time to explain all of that here, but she gives this explanation about the universe, about how, um, how vast the universe is, how big the universe is, how fantastic and awesome and beautiful and perfect the universe is. And then she says, God is the one that created all of that and sustains all of that. And then she adds this. That kind of God, you don't invite as your personal assistant. Isn't that true? I mean, who looks at this vast, powerful, amazing, eternal God and says, you know what, God? I need you to help me here, but not here. That's the principle. Either you take God as God or you cannot take him at all. And that's the difference between someone that sees Jesus as a savior and someone that sees Jesus as a savior and as Lord. If everything that God says ought to be believed and accepted. Everything that God says. We don't get to choose. I actually think that in the seasons in which we live today, that is more and more important. You don't get to be in the middle. And what Jesus is going to do in the rest in actually verses 19 and 20 now is kind of explaining what that looks like. So, for example, in verse 19, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at the word, baptizing, uh, the word baptizing first. Because baptism as Christians, as you know, is not just this religious thing that we do as Christians. Baptism is a public identification, public declaration before witnesses that we believe in Jesus and that we are followers of Jesus. Which, by the way, the, the word followers is a synonym of the word disciple. See, a true disciple is not ashamed to be identified with Jesus. We don't need to be walking around with a big Bible. You don't need a brand that says that you're a Christian. But a Christian, at the end of the day, is someone that is not ashamed to be identified as a Christian. One of my main struggles with modern-day Christianity is because everyone is so sensitive. We are always trying to find a way to say that we're Christians, but not like them. To say that we believe in this, but not like that. We always find a way to casually redefine things so people don't think that we are like those Christians. You know what I found? That it doesn't matter what title you put, what, 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 whatever term you use, people still don't like you. <laughs> it's better to just say, I'm a Christian. So people have asked me, why do you go to church? You know what the answer is? Because I'm a Christian. People have said, why, why, why is it that you read the Bible? Because I'm a Christian. Why do you want to evangelize? Why, why are you trying to share the gospel with me? Because I'm a Christian. You know, um, a few years ago, this is years ago, when we first, Heidi and I um, 
first became Christians and we understood that part of what it means to be a Christian is to be generous and that we had a moral responsibility before the Lord to, to sustain the church financially or to give to the church at least our tithing, right? We share that with one of our family members that is not a Christian just yet. And I remember clearly saying, uh, so my wife actually came out and said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we have, we, we're giving our offering to the church. And he looked at her and said, why? Why would you do that? And then my wife, with good intentions, she explained the reason of tithing and offering and all these things, right? And he goes, 10%? And then the question followed, why would you do that? And we went for a 20-minute explanation that he did not get. And he did not agree with. Rightly so. You know why? Because he's not a Christian. But what I should have said is, you know why I give money to the church? Because I'm a Christian. There's no public. We're never publicly ashamed of who we are and what we believe. Let me just help you with this. In our culture and in our time today, secular people respect much more someone that is blunt about their beliefs than someone that is wishy-washy, you know? Do you know why they respect that more? Because they are blunt about their beliefs. How about if you and I do the same? Don't be ashamed. Public identification. I belong to Jesus. Now, the second thing that you see in that verse, part of what it means to be a disciple, is to be willing to go. Now, I, I really don't have a lot of time to, to explain that, but this is the gist of it. And we're going to use Abraham as an illustration. Yes, the word go means go to different parts of the world. Yes, go means to different uh, to, um and rich peoples and all that stuff. Yes, that includes all of that. But at the end of the day, a disciple is someone that understands that to go is to be willing to sacrifice comfort and safety for a greater purpose. At the end of the day, God calls all Christians to the same thing he called Abraham. To go and to live everything that is comfortable. To be willing to sacrifice anything that is that just for you. To be willing to put uh, to the side your own dreams and ideas and whatever you have for the sake of a greater purpose and a greater cause and a greater God. A disciple is someone that is willing to go, to sacrifice, to surrender. See, just in these two verses, Jesus says that a true disciple is someone that is willing to publicly declare that he or she is a follower of Jesus and that is willing to go and to live anything and everything for the glory of God and the well-being of others. Don't you think that that's a little bit countercultural too? See, the culture tells you that your primary goal in life is to find happiness. Christianity tells you that your primary goal in life is to find happiness as you serve the Lord. Is to find fulfillment not in your dreams and ideas and positions and titles and recognition and career and job and money, but that your primary calling in life is to know him and enjoy him forever. That's a disciple. 
Now Jesus continues, and he says also that a disciple is, always, is also someone that likes to learn, apply, and grow. Where do I get that from? All from one verse, verse 20. It says, he tells them then, go and then uh, teaching them, I'm uh, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. That I have commanded. Now, notice it is from this verse that I get the word learn, apply, and grow. Notice the word teaching. A disciple is someone that enjoys learning, that wants to know who God is, the character of God, the nature of God, the likes of God, the dislikes of God. Is someone that wants to learn his laws, his principles, his hearts, his desires, his heart, his desires, and his plans. See, the Christian, the disciple, is not against experience or emotions. I think that the Bible makes it clear that we are shaped and transformed, not just by the things we know, but by the things we experience and feel. But a true disciple knows that any transformative experience and any transformative emotions emotion cannot be separated from the knowledge of who God is is and what God says. That's why as a church we say that Bible matters, doctrine matters, theology matters because a disciple is a learner. But the second thing we see from that text is that not only he's a learner but he's someone that applies. And we get that from the word obey. And this is where we must understand that knowing the Bible, knowing doctrine, and knowing theology for the sake of knowing doesn't do anything. A disciple is someone that is willing to take God's truths and allow those truths to restructure the way we live with Jesus at the center. Isn't that what, what it means to have a meaningful relationship with somebody? See, I want to argue that when you want to have a meaningful relationship with anybody, not only you need to learn what a person likes or doesn't like, but you also need to be modified by what that person likes and what the person doesn't like. There is no meaningful relationship if you're not willing to be modified, restructured, because of the sake of the other person. Isn't that true how you, how many of you, how many of you guys are, are married? Raise your hand. How many of you guys have been in love ever in your life? Raise your hand. Isn't that true? Isn't that how you make it happen in a relationship? Listen, when I met Heidi, which it'll be 27 years ago. Yeah, I was five. Let me see. Yeah, that's 27 years ago. I, I became a student of Heidi. I actually learned just two things right from the beginning, right? The first thing that I noticed that I learned about her is that she could not keep her eyes off me. <laughs> she was like obsessed with me or something. I learned that. And therefore, I took advantage of that. The second thing I learned about Heidi is that she liked Mickey Mouse. So guess what I did, what I did in prom night? I bought myself a vest with Mickey Mouse, isn't it? You know how cool I looked? No, I didn't. I looked ridiculous, but it didn't matter. 
Because I learned what she liked, and I wanted to be modified, restructured for her sake. If that is true of horizontal relationships, don't you think that this is even more true in our relationship with God? The third thing that a disciple is from that text is not only that he learns and he applies, but that he grows but that he learned to grow or she learns to grow gradually. You know where I get that from? They were everything. No one learns everything overnight. No one learns to apply everything overnight. A disciple is someone that knows that growth is gradual. In the midst of a culture that we are part of the superlative culture or the microwave culture, everything is epic, radical, awesome, supersized, fast, now. But the Bible describes discipleship as a walk. Not as running, but as a walk. It's a long obedience in the same direction Eugene Peterson would say. It's about learning more and more. It's about learning to surrender our lives more and more. It's about willing to sacrifice and let go more and more. It's by learning to apply more and more. It's by growing more and more. It's about making Jesus our ultimate priority in every sphere in life. That's my first point. The second point is this. A disciple is one with a new purpose. And for this one, we're going to do something different today. Let me read the text again and look at what Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And notice that it's from here that Jesus says that a disciple is someone that wants to make more disciples. And for this part of the sermon, we're going to do something different since we're closing this series. And I'm going to invite uh, Brent Sickle to come to the front. Uh, could you please welcome Brent? Now, for those of you who don't know uh, Brent yet, Brent is the newest member of our family. Uh, he is the executive pastor of ministry, and he oversees all of our discipleship ministries in the church, from kids to adult. And one of the beautiful things that, that, that I love about Brent is that he's truly passionate, not only about being a disciple, but making disciples, mm -hmm. right? So um, I'm just going to let the church learn from you a little bit, and I have a couple of questions for you. Um, so how about if we start with this? How about if you give us a definition of what is disciple making? Well, as we look at disciple making, uh, we look at the whole process of what God is transforming our lives are. And so, like, when we become a disciple, that begins at conversion and continues on all the way through the rest of our lives. And so, this whole process is, involves everything from the proclamation of the gospel uh, to the growth as a believer, to being equipped uh, to, to share the gospel, to, to make disciples, and ultimately to be a reproducing disciple. And so, as you're investing in others, you're investing in others so that they become reproducing disciples as well. All right, so if that's kind of our purpose in life as Christians, if you will, um, how do we become that? Can you give us something in specific? 
Yeah, uh, so I think the easiest way, the easiest definition I walk with people through when it comes to being a disciple maker is someone who's intentionally entering into relationship with someone else to point them to trust and follow Jesus to the point where they become a reproducing disciple themselves. And so a lot of times we think we have to be an expert or we have to have all the answers or we have to be at some spiritual level to be involved in disciple making. And that's not true. We see the first believers really engaging in that from the very beginning. And so it's really, uh, are we using the relationships that we're in to be intentional and pointing them to follow Christ in everything? So if we as a church want to have this as part of our culture, how is this related to that? How do you put those two things together? Well, I think you said it earlier. Uh, a disciple-making culture is a gospel-centered culture. They go hand in hand. Uh, a disciple, th- there's no disciple without the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the gospel is only continued and proclaimed through disciples that follow after Christ. And so they're intricately connected. But I think what makes it a culture, especially as we're talking about it in the form of a church, if we want to be a disciple-making culture, it's more than what we do. It's who we are. Hmm. It's our identity. Just as we're identified in Christ, uh, we are identifying that we are going to be disciple-makers. We see that here in Matthew 28. He doesn't call us just to be disciples who, it ends there. We're disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And that's why the church is here today. Would you say that disciple-making is part of what it means for us to be faithful and fruitful? Yeah, I I think uh, faithfulness and fruitfulness are the marks of effective discipleship. Uh, We see that one in in Matthew 5 where uh, Christ gives the illustration of the good good and faithful servant. Uh, Those have been entrusted. We've been entrusted with the gospel message. We've been trusted with uh, the truth of God's word. And so if we want to be effective disciples, those who are active, uh, those who are making a difference, uh, then that plays out in there. And the same thing with our fruitfulness. Uh, We see the fruit of the Spirit uh, and one of those things. But I think even more clearly, uh, Peter states in 1 Peter 1 uh, that uh, all of these fruits uh, that we see in our lives that God is cultivating are, are meant to allow us to be effective and faithful ministers. Hmm. So as I, as I hear you talking about this, and um, right before we were playing around with this idea, is would we say that in order for anybody to not only become a disciple, but to become a disciple maker, would, would we have to believe both in the Great Commandment and the Great Commission at the same time? What would you say to that? Well, I think they go hand in hand. I mean, that's partly why Jesus marks them both as great. Uh, they're the two primary things that we're following after. Um, but to be a, a, a true disciple means that we understand the mission that God's given us uh, and understand that means both loving him and loving others. Mm. Uh, and that, that loving others is, is the neighbor next to us. It's the friend at work. It's the person overseas who does not know the gospel yet. I would even add that a disciple maker does all of those and is in all of those places. But even I'm thinking about 
disciple making is also part of parenting, mm -hmm. right? So as parents, we are making disciples with our kids. Uh, disciple making is what we do even as we serve the church in whatever capacity and area. Disciple making uh, is us being conscious and intentional about who are we going to serve and why we're going to serve and where we want to take them in, our, in their relationship with the Lord uh, or rooted uh, and grounded in the gospel. Mm -hmm. So is there like one more thing that you would like to say to the church about disciple making that just comes to mind? Disciple making takes intentionality. Uh, it doesn't happen by chance. Uh, we have to be intentionally engaged in conversation. We need to intentionally be pointing people to God's Word. And it's those little Christ moments that I think about throughout the day. Uh, the opportunity that God gives you to say something or not. Uh, it's not just with people who, who don't know Christ, but even in our relationships. It's the opportunity we have to, to say something to our children uh, about when we see something in their lives that needs to be shaped more like mm -hmm. God. It's the opportunity He gives us as we are, are serving uh, in kids' ministry to speak into the lives of kids so that they know the truth of God's Word, uh, taking hold of those intentional moments. Amen. Well, thank you, Brent. How about if you give him a round of applause? So one of the things that we see here in Matthew 28 then is that a disciple is someone that puts Jesus, a disciple is someone that has a new priority, which is the glory of God, the well-being of others, Jesus right at the center of that, of that. We just heard that a disciple is someone with a new purpose. The new purpose is to make disciples, is to go into the world and make disciples. And lastly, Matthew 28 is going to tell us that a disciple is someone with a new trust. Now, why would I use the word trust here? Because if you really pay attention to the text, it tells you that the only way someone not only becomes a disciple, but wants to become a disciple that makes disciple, is when finds a, a powerful motivation and a powerful empowerment. A disciple only becomes a disciple and a disciple maker when they find an amazing motivation, an amazing empowerment. Where do I get that from? See, if you notice, the text is structured like a sandwich. Right at the beginning, in verse 18, Jesus says something before sending people out. And right at the end, Jesus says something before sending people out. In between you get the disciple. So look at what it says in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'll explain that in a second. And in verse 20, he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of age. I want you to pay attention to those two concepts. This is Jesus saying to his disciples, yes, I am sending you out as a disciple that makes disciples. But you are not going with your own efforts or abilities or strategies or giftings. No, I'm sending you out with the reality that everything belongs to me and submits to me because I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Look at what Jesus says to these people. Actually, Jesus here is quoting Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is described, Jesus is described as the one that has authority to rule. The one that eventually is going to make that everyone, people from every uh, 
People from every nation, from every language, will eventually serve him and recognize him as Lord. Daniel chapter 7 describes Jesus as someone that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. The disciple goes into the world not as fearful people. The disciple goes into the world knowing that all authority belongs to Jesus and heaven and on earth. And that eventually everyone will have to recognize him as Savior and Lord, whether they like it or not. Let me paint this picture. At the end of ages, everyone will kneel before the Lord, either for salvation or condemnation. But everyone will kneel before him. Jesus is not sending his church into the world hoping that we do a good job. God is not going to put the future of these creations in your hands or my hands. God is putting the future of what he wants to do in the reality that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. See, if that is true, when you go out, you have nothing to lose. You already won. Because all authority belongs to Jesus. See, you don't need to put your hope and your trust on the things you see. You must put your hope and your trust in the reality that all authority belongs to Jesus. And the second thing he says, right at the end, is that we're not just going out with Jesus' authority, but we're going out with Jesus' presence. I am with you until the end of age. What guarantees, listen up church, what guarantees the success of the church as we make disciples in this world does not rest once again in your abilities or your charisma or your education or your giftings. Part of the reason why we know that Jesus wins is because all belong to him and his presence is with us. And that you must trust. You trust his power and you trust his presence. He is with you when you feel encouraged and when you feel discouraged. He is with you when you feel weak and when you feel strong. He is with you when you weep and when you laugh. He is with you when you can see how things change and when you cannot see how things change. He is with you when you're rejected and when you are welcomed. He is with you when he, you see the fruit of your labor and when you cannot see the fruit of your labor. He is with you when you feel his presence and when you feel lonely. He is with you when you have a good day and a bad day. He is with you, period. That changes everything, church. His power and his presence changes everything. As Christians, there's nothing we should be afraid of. We should not be afraid of how much the culture is changing. We should not be afraid of how much our culture is becoming secular. Which, by the way, becoming secular is, is ridiculous because the, the culture has always been secular. Secular. 
Would you see it more? As a church, I pray that we trust in God's authority and we trust in his presence. And how about if I tell you that we have even something greater and bigger than that and why to become disciples and why to make disciples? Because the same Jesus that has the power and the authority in the Bible, listen up, to overpower demons, to heal people, to forgive sins, to control nature, to raise someone from the dead is the same Jesus that goes to the cross and empty himself completely. The same Jesus that surrendered his power at the cross. The question is why? I'm going to make it super simple. Because Jesus had two priorities. The glory of God and you. Jesus is asking us for him to become our priority. And the reason why he does that is because he has already made us his priority. Isn't that the reason why he went to the cross? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Isn't that what Hebrews says? The part of the reason why he went to the cross, it was for the joy set before him. You know what his joy was? You and your salvation. You and your eternal security. That's the motivation and that's the power that makes of us disciples and pushes us to, make this, to become disciple makers. And this is also part of the reason why we participate in communion. So listen, I don't know how your week was. I don't know how much you struggle. I don't know if you're doubting God's presence or doubting his power. But I want to remind you that regardless of what you have gone through, the reality that God is for you and God is with you is certain. You know why? Because Jesus went to the cross he died and resurrected. Now, as we participate in communion, I want to remind you that this is for those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to remind you that communion not only engages our mind, but engages our hearts and affects our emotions and wills when we remember that Jesus, the ultimate authority, the one that everything submits to, surrender it all so we could be accepted, loved, forgiven, justified, sanctified, and adopted. And it cost him everything. His body and his blood. Now we're going to take some time of reflection. And as we hear this melody, I want you to take the time to allow the Spirit to bring to mind anything that you need to surrender. Anything that you might need to ask forgiveness for. Actually, how about, do, how about if we do this? How about if you ask yourself the question, am I truly his disciple? Am I his follower? Am I learning? Am I applying? Am I growing? Maybe surrender something there.
and ask the Lord to work in your life. Let's do that. Now let's uh, remove the first cover of your cup. I'm going to ask you to hold the bread and listen to what Jesus said. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now we can remove the second cover of your cup. The Bible says that in the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful 
that not only you saved us, but you've given us a great reason to live. Lord, we are grateful that not only we were saved from the power of sin and the condemnation of sin, but you also given us a new purpose to live for. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that we continue as a church to grow in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. That you help us die to the things that we need to die to and to live for the things that we need to live to. But at the same time, Lord, I pray that you make of us a disciple-making church. That we become disciples that make disciples. So we truly fulfill, Lord, not only the great commandment, but the great commission. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we say... Trying
that a great way to finish our service? Arise, a church, arise. Um, before sending you out, I have to do two things. Number one, I want to remind you of those, these little index cards that we've been passing out. Remember, as a church, we are interested that more and more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's part of what it means to be a disciple, that you desire that other people become disciples. Therefore, I'm inviting you and remembering you that you can use this an invitation card. So on the other side, you could put somebody's name and put like a little note that you're inviting, whoever you have in mind, to one of our services uh, during Easter, which is right around the corner. And you could put the address next to it and, de and deposit it in one of the boxes outside in the common area. Uh, we're going to be sending this out for you. The other thing that you could do is grab a bunch of this and spread them in the world. Maybe one person will pick it and then join us in our, in our Easter services. Amen? I want to invite you to continue to pray for the people we're praying for, for the one, one friend, one family member, one coworker. Let's see what the Lord does. I want to invite you then now to take these words um, into your hearts. If there's one thing I want you to remember is why is it that at the end of a service we always use the word sent? This is what we mean when we use the word sent. You are here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You are here to love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And the church says, Amen. have a blessed day. Thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent. Uh -huh.